So we're looking at Revelation, and this is the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verses 6 to 21. This is a word of the Lord. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of spirits of the prophets, had sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and the prophets and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Uh, yeah, no, you can stop sharing your screen. Okay. Good morning, everybody. Um, let me uh, just open us up with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Uh, God, we thank you just for uh, this time, and we thank you for this Sunday. And, uh, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about is, is time, and, um, you know, the pace of life moves so quickly, uh, but this is really a time where we get to uh, try to conform to your sense of time. And uh, in one sense, maybe slow down a little bit and reflect uh, upon you and to hear from you. Uh, but in another sense, to reflect upon eternity. And so as we just close out this series in the book of Revelation, we do pray, God, that you would speak to us, that you would mold us and shape us and we orient our hearts towards you, uh, that we might be a faithful people uh, as we live in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. <clears throat> Uh, you know, one of the things, like the way I set my camera is very intentional because uh, my office is a complete mess. <laughs> so you don't see, you don't see any of the mess. So literally I look at what's in the screen and if there's anything in there, I'll, I'll clean that up. And if I were to show you like my desk, if I were to show you like what's over there, uh, you would see my office is like pretty messy. And one of the reasons it's pretty messy is I just have like books piled up everywhere. Uh, you know, I have books for, uh, you know, ministry books for like the sermon series and, you know, different theological books. Uh, I have books that I'm reading for school. I'm, I'm part of a book club. So I have books for that. 
Uh, and then I have like all these other different books that I, I want to read for my, just my own personal interest. And uh, these books are, you know, scattered all over my bookshelves and the floor and the desk and this uh, table I have. And I have like so many books to get through that. Uh, what has happened to me is uh, my biggest pet peeve now is I, I just get really annoyed when I read a book. And I feel like it was a waste of time. I feel like I didn't really get that much out of it. And so to minimize that, uh, I've developed this little reading strategy where, you know, especially if it's a nonfiction book, what I'll do is I'll just read the introduction and then I'll read the conclusion of the book. And then based on that, I'll see, is it worth reading the rest of the book? And uh, the reason I do that is because the introduction and the conclusion, it does usually, it usually gives me like enough of a sense of what the book is actually about. Uh, you can't really do that with fiction books though. Uh, fictional books are more like this journey where the author is taking you through an experience. And uh, those are the kind of books that are trying to activate your imagination and draw you into a story. Now, as apocalyptic literature, you know, the book of Revelation actually has both features because on the one hand, the visions have the ability to spark our imagination and to draw us into this cosmic and spiritual world within God's story of redemption. And uh, it's like, it is like reading a book of fiction in the way that it draws us into this greater story. Although the content of the book, of course, is not fictional. But at the same time, there, there is an introduction and a conclusion to this book, and it helps us understand what the point of the book of Revelation is. And in the introduction, John tells us that the words of this prophecy are ultimately meant to bless those who hear it and keep it. Today, we are going to look at the conclusion, or you could say the epilogue to these visions in the book of Revelation. And what it does is it tells us the point of everything that we have just been through, everything that we have just seen through John's visions. And of course, this will be the final sermon in our series on the book of Revelation. And starting next week, we're going we're gonna to start looking at something new. But if you remember, the way I started this series was I showed you this painting that hangs in the Louvre by Paolo Veronese on the wedding at Cana. And I said the way we should approach the book of Revelation is probably more like a painting. Um, and, but there's also another question that we should consider that we may not always ask after we go through an art museum or visit an art museum or see a painting. And uh, that question is this, uh, how do we react or how do we respond to a painting, right? Now, the way Jen and I experienced the Louvre is uh, we experienced it very quickly because it is a very, very large museum. And so I think we only got to see less than 10% of what's actually there. And we would kind of move from place to place very quickly. And unfortunately, I think that's kind of how we went through the book of Revelation in terms of like zipping through. But I think people who appreciate art will usually spend a lot of time in front of a painting, noticing every single little detail, figuring out what the artist is trying to express. And if there is something philosophically deep there that the author is expressing, then they might start to ponder that as well. And maybe that will lead to making some changes in their own lives. If we were visiting the museum of the book of Revelation and we really got to ponder these visions uh, starting from the throne room of God to the four horsemen, to the appearance of the beast, to the pouring out of the bowls of God's wrath, to the treading of the winepress, to the new heaven and new earth and all of these other visions that we see in the book of Revelation, how would we leave this museum? How should we leave this museum? What impact should these visions have upon us? because these visions are meant to do something to us. They are not meant to be simply observed, but they are meant to, again, as it says in chapter one, bless us, right? The words of this prophecy, of this book of prophecy are meant for our blessing. 
And the spiritual reality that these visions reflect are supposed to have these meaningful implications for our lives. Now, what are those implications supposed to be? Well, in the epilogue, I think John lays it out for us so that we can know how we are supposed to respond to these visions in the way that God intends us to respond. The first thing that we see is there is an exhortation, and this exhortation is to live faithfully. In verse 7, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And of course, there are other allusions to faithful living in some of the other verses, but this verse states it the most clearly. There is a connection between the expectation that Jesus will be returning soon to faithful living. If your expectation is that Jesus will be coming soon, then uh, you will have greater urgency or encouragement to live faithfully. Now, when I first thought about this, initially I thought about an analogy uh, with humans where maybe a child or a teenager who expects their parents to return soon um, will uh, you know, have greater encouragement uh, not to break the rules. And maybe a child or teenager who thinks that their parents are gonna return much, much later will have greater temptation to break the rules because um, you know, they, they think uh, they'll get caught if their parents are returning soon, right? But then, you know, the more I thought about it, I, I don't think that's the connection between the expectation that Jesus will return uh, with and faithful living. I don't think that's the connection. Because you see, if the original recipients were Christian believers who are experiencing persecution and hardship on account of their Christian faith, then they're actually probably experiencing a lot of pressure to give in to compromise in their obedience. And Therefore, I think the analogy would be more like a bully who comes to your house and says, you better throw a party because your parents are out of town, or you better do a whole bunch of uh, things that are not good, or I'm going to make your life difficult. Well, if that's the case, then knowing your parents will be home soon might actually be a source of comfort and strength because then maybe, you know, they'll protect you from the bully. They can deal with the bully on account of their parental authority. And I think that is actually more likely the situation of the exhortation in the book of Revelation. Now, I don't know what the future holds, but uh, the way things are trending in our culture, I, I do think um, Christian believers are probably going to need a little bit more courage and resolve to be faithful than in prior generations. And there's a couple of reasons for this. You know, first, I think there is less social value to being a Christian than there used to be which means uh, being a Christian may not give you the, the social benefits that it once came with. Uh, in the past, I think being a Christian, it might have given you a, maybe a common connection with others, or maybe it would have given you a, a greater benefit of the doubt because people would have assumed you are a moral or a trustworthy person. But I think as we get to these younger uh, age groups, and maybe our age group is included as well, uh, we're probably going to find out that there are less and less people with connections to Christianity which means the practices and the beliefs of Christianity are going to seem more and more foreign to the wider culture. And also due to a combination of you know, things like hypocrisy or corruption within Christian institutions, along with a certain kind of media coverage, Christians probably won't be given the benefit of the doubt anymore as being morally upright citizens. Uh, the opposite will probably happen because the values of the culture are increasingly becoming antithetical to a Christian perspective. And that means uh, Christians won't receive the benefit of the doubt. There will be certain negative assumptions being made about Christians, and that translates into certain pressures with respect to faithful living. 
But of course, that is not unique uh, for Christian believers in history. In fact, that was the case for believers in Asia Minor, the recipients of the Book of Revelation. Uh, the surrounding culture revolved around pagan temple worship, so, so much so that you know, if you wanted to run a small business, you had to belong to a trade guild, and every trade guild was allied uh, to a different pagan deity. And so uh, if you were part of this trade guild, uh, it was just kind of what people did in the culture. You had to uh, worship these pagan deities in a, a, in a temple. And uh, that was how things were in Asia Minor, and nobody thought anything of it except for Christians. Why? Because for Christian believers, that meant it was participating in idolatry and idol worship, which was something that was forbidden um, by, uh, for Christians. Uh, and so in that scenario, faithful living meant having your small business suffer, being on the outside of society. And obedience actually had a real cost, and the temptation uh, to compromise was very real because uh, if you compromise, then maybe life gets a little bit easier. Maybe your business starts to thrive more and you don't struggle uh, economically or socially. Now, the book of Revelation was trying to show us that behind all the temptation to compromise, there is this raging spiritual battle that is going on. And there is a spiritual enemy that is trying to pressure uh, Christian believers to compromise in their obedience and in their faith. And it's also meant to show us that in the end, those who compromise by giving into Satan's devices will not only be cut off from blessing, the blessing of God, but will also be subject to the wrath of God. And in your obedience, you make a choice in terms of where your ultimate allegiance lies. Either you worship the one who sits upon the throne, or you worship the counterfeit who sits upon a counterfeit throne. And so the conclusion here reinforces what the visions are meant to do by exhorting us to live faithfully, to draw strength and encouragement from the fact that Jesus is coming soon. Despite the pressures to compromise, know that Jesus will return soon. Now, the promise that Jesus is coming soon, and I guess this is a second emphasis in that conclusion, the promise that Jesus is coming soon is not only found in verse 7, but you also see it in verse 12. It says, behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And it's also repeated in verse 20, surely I am coming soon. And, you know, you can look at it as a warning for those who haven't yet repented and turned to Jesus. But, you know, for the believer, it's actually meant to be a promise, an encouraging promise. In the introduction to the book of Revelation, the exhortation to keep what is written in the book of prophecy is connected to the fact that the time is near. Now, as we think about the promise of the return of Jesus, uh, I want to focus on words like soon and words like near, uh, words that have a reference to time. Time is a, is a really interesting concept that, you know, I've, I've actually started to think about a lot these days. And I realize there are a lot of different ways of actually looking at time. And, um, you know, I didn't get too deep into physics. So, um, you know, people like the uh, Newtons and Galileos and Einsteins, uh, they probably thought about time in a lot deeper and more complicated way. But um, for me, uh, you know, I started thinking about time and, you know, I thought it seems as though in history, people have looked at time differently. So at one point, time was seen as an objective reality that was the same for people everywhere. And I, I actually think it was Einstein who introduced the concept of time based on a theory of relativity where the rates of time actually fluctuate based on other factors. And I think, uh, you know, that's probably the best I can do to understand uh, the physics aspects of time. But, um, you know, 
I, I started thinking about time because there was this uh, German social scientist named Hartmut Rosa that I recently uh, encountered and I got his book, uh, Social Acceleration, a, a New Theory of Modernity. He also has a TED talk if you're interested in listening to it. But he says a lot of the challenges that we are facing in modernity, uh, including things like right the destabilization of identity uh, is due to the shrinking of time. Uh, technology has accelerated production, it's accelerated social change, it's accelerated the pace of life and human beings are just not able to keep up with the acceleration of time. And so one of the reasons why modern people can feel so unhappy or feel so lost or feel so disoriented or depressed or anxious uh, it could actually be a problem of time. And I thought that was such a fascinating theory of the modern life um, that on the surface, it actually makes a lot of sense to me. Now, I, I can also see actually, by the way, why secular people like things like meditation because it is a way to slow time down, right? So I can see why there's a benefit uh, to uh, meditating. But um, for a Christian, I can see why God builds in spiritual disciplines like the Sabbath and things like prayer, because those things are also meant to slow down time. And perhaps more than uh, ever uh, in the modern world, we need these kinds of spiritual disciplines. Now, one of the characteristics of God is that he is actually beyond space and time. Uh, his omniscience means space cannot limit God. Uh, his eternality means that God is not limited by time. And yet he subjected himself to being limited by safe space and time in the second person of the Trinity through, his, uh, through the incarnation of Jesus. But with respect to God's being in and of himself, he, he doesn't exist within the limits of space and time. And yet there are all sorts of references to time in the Bible. Uh, from the very beginning, there are days mentioned in the creation narrative, which imply the existence of time. The Bible also tells us how old people were and how many years a certain king reigned. A lot of the practices of Old Testament law revolve around time. I mentioned the practice of Sabbath, uh, but also the time of the year when certain feasts are to be celebrated or certain sacrifices are to be made. And it turns out that time is actually pretty important in the Bible, even though it doesn't explicitly say it. But time is not always understood uniformly either, because while there are days and months and years, there is also this uh, timeline according to redemption. And in the opening of the book of Revelation, when John says, uh, Jesus showed me the things which must soon take place because the time is near, it's actually a reference to a prophecy in Daniel chapter two that talks about what would take place in the last days. And that prophecy is fulfilled through the death and resurrection of Jesus because when Jesus came in his first coming, what he did was he inaugurated the kingdom of God which according to the language of 1 John, it meant, means true light is now already shining in this darkness. And yet there continues to be darkness, but we are in the last days of darkness because Jesus will soon come again. Now, when Jesus says he is coming soon, we probably do uh, tend to think about it in terms of years, days, and hours. And maybe we say, you know, it's been over 2000 years. I thought Jesus said he was coming soon. Uh, 2,000 years doesn't seem like it's, it's soon. And maybe in our minds, right, 2,000 years is, is a long time. And uh, we, we're probably saying if Jesus hasn't come yet, then um, you know, maybe he's not coming soon. It's, it's already been 2,000 years. But you know, the way the book of Revelation views it is Jesus is coming soon with respect to the timeline of God's grand plan of redemption, 
we are in the last phase of that plan because Jesus has come, he has thrown Satan down, and therefore Satan's days are numbered, but he's still on the attack. And so this is the age where we should expect Satan to attack the church. And those attacks come, as we've seen in previous sermons, by way of the beast or state institutions. It can come by way of the false prophet infiltrating the church with lies and false teaching, or it can come by way of the prostitute through the lusts of the heart. And even so, these are the last days because Jesus will return soon, which means we are near the end of God's entire plan of redemption, his unfolding plan of redemption. And this means that this is a time where the church must be faithful, must resist sinful compromise, must persevere in our witness in the world. Uh, to put it bluntly, being a Christian is not meant to be easy, and sometimes it will hurt. But we have to have the faith and the courage to choose the path that is not always easy to walk if that path is the path of faithfulness. And if the path of faithfulness ends up being difficult, then it will naturally generate this longing within our hearts for Jesus to come to us soon. Uh, in verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. And then the word, the one who hears says, come. That's directed to Jesus. The spirit and the bride and those who hear are longing for the return of Christ. They're saying, come Lord Jesus. And I think our disposition regarding Jesus's return, it does tell us a great deal about whether our hearts are longing for heaven or longing for earth, longing for the world to come or longing for this world. And if our heart is crying out, come Lord Jesus, then it does tells us, tell us that we are longing for uh, the right thing. We are longing for heaven itself. But if our, our heart is crying out, hang on a second, Jesus, right? I want to do a couple things first, right? I want to travel a little bit first and have some experiences first of, of uh, this life. Then maybe it means our hearts are a little bit too attached to this world. Uh, because if Jesus does return, uh, every Christian believer, we should long for it. We should anticipate it because uh, what is promised is far more glorious than anything good and glorious here in this world. Uh, but I don't think this latter perspective of, hang on a second, right? I don't think that's actually been the dominant perspective of Christians throughout history because we live in a pretty unique period of time where uh, our suffering has been much less than prior generations. If any of you were there last night for the parent seminar, uh, that's what the speaker also said as well. Uh, you know, traditionally, like, usually there has been a lot of hardship and a lot of suffering uh, in people's lives. And we just happen to live in a very unique moment where collectively uh, in the West, we haven't experienced uh, all that much of it. And uh, the pandemic is probably the most difficult thing that, again, collectively we have experienced in our lifetimes. But there, there have been worse times of plague and worse times of war and, and death and uncertainty and trauma and those kinds of things. You know, the reason why uh, Koreans celebrate 100 days of a baby's life is because in the past, a lot of babies didn't make it past 100 days. And, uh, you know, just think about that, right? A lot of babies didn't make it past 100 days. So 100 days meant that the baby had a good chance of making it to their first birthday. And if they made it to their first birthday, there was a good chance that the baby would make it out of infancy. And these days, you know, it does happen sometimes, but it doesn't happen as frequently as it used to because we have these uh, wonderful and great medical innovations. And I do think it is a blessing to live in this period of time, but there are also certain spiritual dangers associated with that. And one of the dangers is growing a deeper attachment to the things of the world. We are in the world, but we are supposed to be exiles in this world. This 
world is not our home. And when Jesus returns, those who have washed their robes will be taken home so that they might have the right to eat the tree of life and enter the city by the gates. That's what uh, it says in our passage. And the book of Revelation is also clear that those who reject Jesus will be on the outside and will be held accountable for their evil works. But as we have already mentioned in prior sermons, this is also the age of salvation. God's desire is for people to receive what he has to offer in Jesus Christ. And we can see that emphasized in the conclusion as well, uh, because there's this uh, invitation that's given. In verse 17, John says, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. That is an allusion to what we read in our call to worship in Isaiah 55, which says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. In that Isaiah passage, the Lord is calling those who have no money or food to come with them to, with their empty hands, and God will make with them an everlasting covenant. The greatest word one can hear from God is one of invitation. It is the one that invites us to come to him. And when we are invited to someone's home in our culture, there's probably always a sense in which uh, we, we should bring something. We should bring some dessert, or we should bring some wine, or we should bring some fruit. But you see, God's hospitality is not looking for us to bring uh, him something. His invitation is for those who have nothing to bring. His invitation is for those who are thirsty to come thirsty, to come hungry, to come poor. And it is only in the desperation of our nothingness that our hands will be open to receive all that he has to offer to us. And so you see, poverty of spirit and faithful obedience, they, they actually do go hand in hand because worship binds them together. Uh, if you feel empty and you believe something like money or career or status or success or a relationship is what is going to make you full, then guess what? You will be faithfully obedient to those things. That's how idolatry works. If you think your career is going to fill you, then it is going to be really hard to obey Jesus when there is a time where your career is asking you to do something or demanding you of something that Jesus would not condone or that Jesus longs for. And probably, in, again, in our culture, it's probably time, right? Or if you think a relationship is going to fill you, it's going to be really hard to obey Jesus if there's a time where that relationship is asking you to do something that Jesus wouldn't necessarily condone. So you see, you see how that works. Uh, so we have to take this poverty of spirit, this sense of emptiness, this sense of need, and we have to come to Jesus with it and let him satisfy us with this water of life without price so that our hearts would be formed to worship him alone. And that's when we are going to be able to live faithfully to him. Uh, it's a connection to, to worship. Now, the circumstances of life uh, for us, it may get easier or it may get harder. Uh, who, who knows? But when difficulty does come and the pressure from Satan does come, the question that I think Revelation is calling us to consider and to ask and to respond to is, will you be willing to endure hardship through faithful living for Jesus? Will you commit your worship to him or will you give in to these counterfeit idols? That's what the book of Revelation, I think, is ultimately considered, asking us to consider. That's what these visions are asking us to consider. And uh, these visions are meant to spark our imagination, to encourage us 
to not side uh, with the beast, but to side with Jesus, who will be the ultimate victor, who will defeat the beast once and for all, and who will take us into this glorious new heaven and new earth, this new city, this new Jerusalem, uh, because he is the lamb who has been slain. And so as we conclude the series, uh, consider that and consider these visions because the stakes really are uh, very, very high. Let's pray together. Uh, God, we thank you for this series in the book of Revelation, and we thank you for all the visions. And, uh, you know, um, I guess only you know what lies ahead uh, in terms of, you know, the future of uh, our church and, um, you know, how the wider culture and wider society uh, views uh, Christianity and Christian believers and Christian beliefs and Christian practices. Uh, and I do pray, God, that uh, if there is a time that comes or a time that is near where, um, you know, we eventually have to um, suffer or experience difficulty on account, of, on account of our faith, I do pray that you would remind us of the book of Revelation and that it would give us great blessing and it would give us great encouragement to persevere and to sometimes um, make the hard sacrifices uh, out of simply a desire, not out of pragmatism, but out of a desire to be faithful to you. And um, uh, I I pray, God, that you would uh, help us to be a faithful church, a faithful community of believers, so much so that, um, uh, you know, we would maintain um, the importance of of holiness and reflecting the image and the likeness of Christ uh, in our being, in our actions, in our thoughts, so that we can uh, really demonstrate outwardly uh, that our heart's longing is for you, that our worship is for you. So protect us from the the evil one, protect us from the pressures of the beast, and protect us from the lies of the false prophet, protect us from uh, the lusts of the prostitute, uh, and help us to see the one who sits upon the throne, who is full of authority, who is full of glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.